Good morning, everyone. If any of you while I preach would like to come and sit on these steps or lay down, you're more than welcome. Three, three weeks ago, we began a, a teaching series entitled Reasons to Believe, and, and really my intention in this series has been to bring two very different worldviews, the Christian and the secular worldview, into conversation with one another. And if you remember, on that first Sunday, I opened the sermon with a quote from a well-known atheist, Richard Dawkins, who writes, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is the belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Now, if, if Richard were to receive an invitation to come and join us this morning to debate with me or you or, or someone on the nature of, of faith and, and science, his statement on faith, which actually sounds quite devastating, would need to be pulled apart and examined. Is what he's saying true? Is faith the absence of thinking. Is faith, as he suggests, a kind of vague sentiment, a feeling, a wish about the way things are or the way we want them to be, or is faith something more? That would be the question. Now, what about evidence? The evidence that he demands. What kind of evidence does he consider valid and why? Does he ele elevate certain kinds of data because it fits in keeping with his conclusions and minimizes or rejects other data because it doesn't lead where he wants to go? Christianity has always been understood to be a thinking person's religion, which is to say it can be examined. It can hold up under scrutiny. Now, that's not to say that the Christian worldview explains everything in detail, leaving every, answer, every question answered. We need to freely admit as Christians that there's all kinds of things we don't know and perhaps may never know, but there are reasons to believe. And there is evidence upon which all of us can stake our faith. Over the last few weeks, I've been returning to the same questions again and again. How does a secular age understand the complexity of human need and longing? And does a secular worldview make better sense of this world and our experience of it than a Christian one? Two weeks ago, I talked about the human longing for meaning and satisfaction. Last week, I contrasted a, a secular understanding of freedom over against a Christian understanding of freedom. And this morning, I want to turn our attention to the issue of identity. Who am I? Who are you? And why are we obsessed with discovering who we are? In a wonderful little book entitled The Gift of Being Yourself, David Benner, Christian author, makes the following observation. He writes, in all of creation, identity is a challenge only for humans. A tulip knows exactly what it is. It is never tempted by false ways of being, nor does it face complicated decisions in the process of becoming. So it is with dogs, rocks, trees, stars, amoebas, electrons, and all other things. Humans, however, encounter a more challenging existence. We think we consider options, we decide, we act, we doubt. 
Simple being is tremendously difficult to achieve. Body and soul contain thousands of possibilities out of which you can build many identities. Now, Christian spirituality has at least one thing in common with modern secularism. They both have a lot to say about identity. That being said, the starting place and the concluding place between these two is radically different. Over the course of the last few weeks, I've been referring to a book written by Tim Keller entitled Making Sense of God. And in this book, Keller suggests that there are essentially three different paths that one can travel when it comes to understanding our identity. We can travel outward, inward, or upward. And most of us tend to take one of these paths as the primary one, but they're not mutually exclusive. And so this morning, as I describe these various pathways to identity, I want you to pay attention to the pathway that has been primary in your own self-understanding. First, looking outward. Looking outward is prevalent among all kinds of people, but but particularly for people who live in communal cultures. Who they are, in many respects, has been decided for these people before they were even born. Here, identity is connected to, uh, in large part, to one's family, to one's standing in the community, to one's role, to one's duty. Individuals tend to follow in the vocation of their parents. They tend to marry people that have been known to their extended family for generations. When they get married, they tend to live in the same house as their extended family, or they live in the same neighborhood or on the same streets. Now, my my description of this outward path may seem to apply to other people living in other countries or cultures, but I promise you, it is alive and well here in the West as well. It just looks a little different. So think about the big strong high school guy who's playing on the football team not because he likes football but because other people tell him that's what he should do he's actually intellectual or he is an artist who loves to draw and paint but he's playing football because that's what everyone knows big tall strong guys do in high school We see this outward path at play when a daughter has to go to UBC for university because that's where her mother or her father went to university. We see it at play in Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. At birth, Harry was given an identity, His Royal Highness, the Duke of Sussex. And along with the title comes a host of expectations and responsibilities. When Meghan married Harry, she became a part of this whole world. And these days, the Duke and Duchess are looking to extricate themselves from these identities in favor of ones that are more to their own choosing. Now, some reject this outward path of identity because it feels suffocating. It feels like there's no room for uniqueness of personality or of gifts or of desire. Personal choice tends to be held captive to the expectations of others. This is the outward path. But we can also look inward, and this is altogether a different path. Identity is primarily understood as something we create for ourselves, not something we receive from others. 
And this way of thinking doesn't materialize out of thin air. It's founded in prior intellectual commitments, like rejecting the notion that identity is found in our relationship with other people. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks of me. It only matters what I think. That's an intellectual commitment. This way of thinking is also founded upon the rejection of any notion that there's a God who made us. If no one made us, then no one can tell us who we are. Now, these days, there is a philosophy at play in our culture when it comes to identity that is in keeping with this inward approach. It's called essentialism. And essentialism is the belief that all things, and by implication, all people have a set of characteristics that makes them what they are. The task, then, of the scientist, the philosopher, the individual is one of discovery and then self-expression. And so the journey of self-discovery becomes a matter of highest importance. If no one can tell you who you are, then you've got to figure it out on your own and fast before you make a mess of your life or dither away your life and waste it. And so in this pathway, there is all kinds of pressure to get it right. Now, if I was going to summarize the, 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 the anthem of essentialism in one phrase, it would be this. What I feel is what's real about me and this world. And the implications of this philosophy are as follows. We should be free to act in complete congruence with our own feelings. This is our right. In fact, it's morally wrong to act in opposition to whatever we feel. To do so is a denial of my true self. What I feel is what's real about me and the world. Now, this is the ultimate statement of autonomous self-creation, and it's completely unworkable, of course. I'm not that powerful. You're not that powerful. And so as much as I might feel and, in fact, insist that I'm actually a six-foot-eight African-American NBA all-star, in reality, I'm a five-foot-nine white guy who can't dunk. <laughs> in this regard, what I feel is completely disconnected from reality. David Benner suggests that, that many people, what they end up doing in life is they they end up searching for identities and they try them on like pieces of clothing. What they're looking for is a style of being that fits who they are or who they want to be. And so you know how it all works. When we're describing who we are, our identity, we often begin with things that we like or do. So me, for example, I love being outside. I've always loved being outside, whether it's swimming or hiking or running, especially running. And so whether I am running down the road or traversing the mountain trails, I love it. And this jacket, my running jacket, is a key piece of my apparel. I really like this jacket, but more than liking the way it looks or how it makes me feel, it says something about the kind of person that I am. Many of you who know me know that I'm an absolute fanatic when it comes to soccer. I've been playing the game from the time I was a small boy, and when I ended up having a small boy of my own, my playing days began to diminish in favor of my coaching days. 
I have coached literally hundreds of different soccer players. And so whether it's breaking down the game or explaining position or strategy or, or helping people with their skills, I coach. It's a part of what I do. In fact, this coat, uh, in addition to being really warm and comfortable, is something I wear almost every time I'm on the pitch. I've worn this coat for thousands of hours, and often when I wear it, people name me with one word. It's simply coach. Now, I have all kinds of things that I love and all kinds of things that I do. I've got one more ja jacket in my magic bin here. It's actually a jacket that I wear the least. Weddings, funerals mainly, and otherwise it almost never gets put on. And while I hardly ever wear this to work, in one respect, you could say that this coat represents the kind of work that I do as a pastor. Apart from the hours I spend sleeping in a given week, I spend more hours working during that week than I do uh, spending it doing anything else. Uh, my job, though it doesn't define me per se, I'm not my job, but my job does have a, a powerful effect in shaping who I've become, shaping activities, shaping desires, and, and all kinds of things. So who am I, Mark Peters? Am I a runner? Am I a coach? Am I a pastor? Well, yes, of course, I'm, I'm all of these things. But can our identity be limited to our activity or to our job? If I were to suffer a stroke or to sustain a, a severe spinal cord injury that, that prevented me from ever running again or ever being on the pitch, as a coach, would I cease to be me? The day's coming, and, and it's not that far off, when I'm going to retire. And upon my retirement, probably no one is ever going to call me Pastor Mark again. But when that day comes, will my identity diminish? Or will I remain myself? You see, this is the problem with the first two paths for determining identity. They're both time-sensitive and incredibly fragile. Tim Keller writes, the modern self is crushing. It must base itself on success or achievement or some human love relationship. And if any of these things is jeopardized or lost, you lose your very identity. And so if we build our identity on achievement, we are crushed when someone around us achieves more. If you think of yourself primarily as a singer, uh, an artist, or an athlete, but you don't get the callback, you don't land the commission, or sign the professional contract, you're going to experience identity confusion. You're going to say to yourself, well, if I'm not this, then what am I? When our identity becomes dependent on certain human relationships, we find ourselves in the same danger. Keller rightly states that, that no one on planet Earth can affirm themselves. All of us need a word of blessing from the outside, from someone, and where is this word of affirmation going to come from? Our parents? What if they don't bless us? Or what if they do and then they die? Chances are most of us are going to outlive our parents. What do we do then? We can build our identity around our friendships, but what if our friends relocate? We can build our identity around our spouse. What if they walk out on us? 
When we place our identity in the hands of something that can be lost, like our skill or reputation, when we place our identity in a person that we can lose through death, divorce, or relocation, our sense of self will forever be insecure. And so, our identity needs to be rooted in something or someone that is not subject to loss or change. Looking upward is the third option to take when it comes to understanding identity. The primary gaze on, on this path is neither outward or inward, it's, it's up. Only the God who created us can tell us who we really are. And so, as we align ourselves to God, we discover who we really are. Our identity is both a gift, which is to say it's something we receive, and it's a process. It's something that we grow into. This is true of every human being. It was true even of Jesus. So yes, Jesus was born with an identity and a calling, as we all are, but like the rest of us, Jesus walked a pathway of growth and discovery. His path involved looking outward to his parents, his neighbors, his teachers. It involved looking inward to discover his unique gifts, personality, calling. It involved looking upward to his Father in heaven. And what I want to do this morning in the scriptures, and I want, I want to lead you through a few passages that describe this unique identity journey of Jesus, trusting that as we look to him, we might find a way of being for ourselves. On the whole, we know very little about Jesus' parents. We know their names, Mary and Joseph. We don't know their personalities. We don't know what they look like. We don't know much about their extended family. What we do know is that when God approached Mary and then later Joseph, explaining that Mary was going to become pregnant through divine means and the one born to her would be the Son of God, what we know is when they received this startling news, their response was yes. They surrendered in faith and trust. Every child, every child learns by example. By watching his parents, Jesus learned that God is trustworthy. And over time, Jesus himself came to trust God. As Jesus got older, he would have heard all of the stories surrounding his miraculous birth, his mother's miraculous pregnancy, the angelic choir, the guiding star, the, the, the wise men bringing costly gifts. These stories were key to Jesus' developing sense of identity. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 43. In this text, what we find is that, that Jesus, at the age of 12, is off with his parents and extended family and people from his surrounding town, and they, they made their way to Jerusalem. Every year, they made this trek from Nazareth to Jerusalem to attend the Feast of the Passover. So I'm going to pick up the story in verse 43. You can follow along as I read. After the festival was over, 
while his parents, Mary and Joseph, were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they, the parents, were unaware of it. Thinking Jesus was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to him. Then he, Jesus, went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. What I find fascinating about this account is the conversation that goes on between Mary and preteen Jesus. It's striking. The conversation is all about identity freedom and responsibility. And so just putting it in my own words, Mary finds Jesus in a panic, and Jesus says, Mom, why are you so stressed out? And Mary says, stressed out? Of course I'm stressed out. I'm your mother. It's my job to be stressed out. You had us worried sick. Jesus, how would you feel if your 12-year-old went missing for three days? And Jesus doesn't understand. I'm sorry I scared you, Mom, but I was at the temple the entire time. I have so many questions about God, and I need to spend time with people who know Him deeply. You see, Jesus was growing up as a 12-year-old, and His understanding of, of who He was and how He fit into God's purposes was emerging. Jesus was letting go of the safety and security of his parents, as all preteen children do, so that he could venture out into God's world and ultimately embrace his identity and calling. Luke tells us that Jesus was growing in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and others. We don't tend to think about Jesus as growing, but in his humanity, Jesus did grow physically, mentally, emotionally, and relationally, a growing sense of identity takes time. It did for Jesus, and it will for all of us as well. Now, if we just skip ahead, less than a chapter, in, in chapter 3, we see another moment in Jesus' life that was profound in marking his identity. I'm talking, of course, of, uh, about his baptism. And so, in, in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 23, this is what we read. Verse 21, as he was praying, that is Jesus, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, I don't know this for certain. The Bible doesn't say. But if Jesus were asked to pick one moment in his life on earth, a favorite moment, a moment that he could replay over and over again in his mind whenever life became difficult, I suspect this is the moment that Jesus would have chosen. The voice that Jesus heard, we're told, came from heaven, and God the Father spoke a word 
of identity and affirmation. Jesus, never be in doubt about who you are. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. One author writes, few moments are as important as when heaven speaks. And I wonder, as you think about your own life, your identity, do you know who you are or what you're worth? In Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, we we read that, that God chose us. God chose you in Christ before the world was even created. He chose you to be with Him, to be like Him. He chose to adopt you as His daughter or son. And you might ask, why would God choose me? And the, the, the answer that Ephesians gives us is remarkable, so much so, we almost can't believe it to be true. God chose you because you bring Him pleasure. That's what Paul writes. There's a remarkable similarity between what God said to Jesus at His baptism and what He says to each of us in Ephesians 1. The love of God was the foundation for Jesus' identity and calling, and it's the only solid foundation for our own. David Benner writes, whether we realize it or not, our being is grounded in God's love. The generative love of God was our origin. The embracing love of God sustains our existence. The inextinguishable love of God is the only hope for our fulfillment. Love is our identity and our calling, for we are children of love. Until we dare to believe that nothing can separate us from God's love, nothing that we could fail to do, nor anything that could be done by anyone else to us, we remain in the elementary grades of Christian spiritual transformation. An identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first Thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. Who am I? I am loved by God. Who am I? I am loved by God. Say it with me. Who are you? I am loved by God. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's the power of rehearsing the truth over and over again until it takes root in our mind, our heart, and our physical body. When it does, no lie that is ever directed to us will find a place to rest. Lies like you're not smart enough, skilled enough, or beautiful enough. Lies like you'll never make it, you don't matter, no one cares. No, this is what's true. I am loved by God, as are you. And this is what Jesus did. After his baptism, we're told that he was led into the wilderness, and for 40 days, he was tested. And I want to mention just the first test where the devil encouraged Jesus to turn bread into stones. 40 days is a long time to be without food, Jesus. You must be famished. If you were my son, I would never put you through this much suffering. Maybe God's forgotten about you. Turn a few stones into bread. Fill your stomach. Meet your own needs. Then get on with your mission. 
Now, there's a lot more going on here than simply stones and bread. Jesus is being tempted to embrace self-determination and self-reliance. By self-determination, I mean the temptation to treat oneself as the center of the universe, the place where my needs, wants, preferences, and desires reign supreme, where they matter more than any other thing. That's self-determination. Self-reliance is the inclination to go it alone and cut God out. And so as the temptation came to Jesus, self-determination, self-reliance, I wonder, what did Jesus do? Was there a brief moment where he rehearsed what the Father had spoken to him just weeks before at his baptism? Did he remind himself, no, 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 I am loved by God. We're not told what took place in Jesus' thoughts. What we do know is in that moment, Jesus chose to trust his Father. God will provide when he determines it's right. Identity is both a gift and a process. It's something we receive. It's also something we grow into. And along with this growing sense of identity comes this growing commitment to take our place at God's side and to participate in what he's doing. Your identity, my identity, isn't like silverware. It's not something we polish and then put behind glass for people to look at. It's something we use. It's something we put to work for God's sake, for others' sake. And the theological word for this is vocation. It's, it's a word that means something like a calling. And as Benner suggests, all of us are first called to simply be who we are. And so, are you creative? Fantastic. Are you a detail kind of person? It's brilliant. Are you an extrovert? Then enjoy the people around you. And if you're an introvert, enter into the warmth of silence and enjoy the company of your own thoughts. It doesn't have to be hard to be ourselves. See, the pressure we put on ourselves to be something that we're not, the pressure we receive from others to be something that we're not, this is what makes identity so challenging for us. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 30, Jesus invites us to come to him with the burdens we carry, even burdens of identity, and the promise is that he will give us rest. The promise is that Jesus knows who we are, and he won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on us because he loves us. If the first call is simply to be human, that is, to be who we are, then the second calling for all of us is the call to be Christian, which is to say the call to follow Jesus. You see, our modern Western identity has largely been defined in terms of what we do, our activity, our work, those kinds of things. But from a biblical perspective, we cannot know ourselves apart from the one who made us, the one who redeemed us. When we know the love of Jesus, when we live in the love of Jesus and walk in his way, we can't help but be ourselves. Third, your unique calling in this world is, of course, going to be connected to the gifts and the abilities that you possess. It's going to be connected to 
the desires that are at place within you. It's going to be connected to the need of the world around you. And this isn't something that any of us need to worry about. I mean, how many of you need one more thing to be stressed out about? Let's not make identity a part of it. This is something that God works out in you over the course of your lives. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, for we are God's handiwork or workmanship or masterpiece. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do, which means he knows the good we're meant to do. He's planned it out already. And step by step, as we trust him, and follow the Holy Spirit's prompting, the good that is right in front of us to do, we'll do. It's not something we need to stress about. You are more than your biology. You are more than your ethnicity. You are more than your sexuality. You are more than the family you were born into. You are more than the education you've received or the places you have visited. You are more than your personality, your emotions, your thoughts. You are more than your friendships, more than your marital status. You are more than your followers on Instagram or Facebook. You are so much more. Identity is is complex, it's multifaceted. Your friends and family can't tell you who you are. They may know you, but they don't see all of you. And you may be in a slightly better position than they are, but even your own self-knowledge is incomplete. When we place our identity in the hands of something that can be lost or in a person we can lose, then our sense of self is always going to remain insecure. And so our identity needs to be rooted in someone that isn't subject to loss and change. God knows you. God made you. He loves you. You bring Him pleasure. And as we come to know Him and align ourselves with Him, we discover who we are and what we're worth. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. They're going to lead us in one concluding song as they come. Allow me to pray for us. Father, we find ourselves subject to so many people or forces or voices telling us who we should be or what we are, and the noise makes us deaf to your voice. And so I pray even now, Holy Spirit, that you would come with your illuminating light and that you would shine so that we might see ourselves as you do. People who are dearly loved, people who have been made unique, people with a calling and a mission in this world. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done to love us particularly for your death on a cross in order to provide a path into relationship with the Father. And so we treasure our status as sons and daughters, and even as we sing now, we give you praise. Amen.